1: Hi, everybody! Family, friends, everybody! This is Ragu back for an, with another mind rolling, and I'm I'm back with uh, Rabbi Naomi Levy, and welcome to the show.
2: It's my honor to be here with you, Ragu.
1: Thank you, thank you. Is that so, how you
2: pronounce your name? Ragu. Ragu.
1: Yeah, just the the emphasis on the ra ragu yeah it's a nickname that i got uh in india from my uh well, the full name i got from my guru is is like so unpronounceable to westerners that i had to just take the first part of it w- which now you know it's easy because if anyone says what you know like an operator i go ragu spaghetti sauce right i
2: know it's like, but that's ragu <laughs> <laughs> yeah right
1: <laughs> um Rabbi Naomi has written uh, a wonderful book called Einstein and the Rabbi, Searching for the Soul. And it's just chock full of so many different, uh, like, wonderful anecdotes and about your life, of course, and then uh, some really great insights that people can use on a day-to-day basis for helping uh, maneuver through this uh, terrain of life that we're having right now which is pretty interesting yes. uh but the core of this thing you know so of course Einstein and the rabbi so I I need you to well before we even get there I need you to say to tell me what are the thing, what are the things that um made a big impression on you I I mean, in reading the book, so you were four. I ask people, what triggered you into a a life on the path, basically, or understanding that there was a reality that that we could realize that uh, wasn't based on mind ego, just that simplistic kind of thing. But of course, reading the book, you knew from four years old where you were going. So to to say, just talk a little bit about your experience that turned you onto the path that you're on now.
2: Well, I I open the book by saying that uh, wherever I go, people always ask me, was your father a rabbi? And I always respond, no, my father was in the shmata business, which um, is another way of saying he was in the garment industry, but he was my rabbi. And he taught me from the youngest age. He would just, my bedtime stories were Bible stories, and he would Shlep me to synagogue and, uh, I would sit and play with the strands of his prayer shawl. And, um, I can't explain why or how, but I can tell you that from the very youngest age, I knew I was going to be a rabbi. I wanted to be a rabbi. Did I know I was going to be a rabbi? Um, people laughed at me. People scolded me. People told me, don't, you know, girls can't be rabbis. Um, But I believed that I was going to be a rabbi, and I just felt it in my DNA, in my breath. Um, Actually, a friend of mine from elementary school just sent this to me. I don't know if you can see this so well, but this is my eighth grade yearbook. Eighth grade. And you see my favorite study is Gomorrah, which means Talmud study, and my ambition rabbi <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
2: uh it just was always part of my life breath always and it was humiliating when i wrote that because everyone laughed mm. um but i was deadly serious
1: wow and this is in brooklyn right
2: in brooklyn
1: yeah where um uh, of course the uh orthodox jews uh there there's uh Many of them in Brooklyn. I can't remember which particular.
2: Yeah, well, I grew up in a almost hundred uh, percent Hasidic neighborhood called Borough Park.
1: Oh, Borough Park, and, right?
2: Um, I went to, you know, I went to a more liberal elementary school, but I went to an Orthodox yeshiva high school where it wasn't okay to say I'd like to be a rabbi. Certainly say wasn't the something, least. It wasn't something I revealed to people. Yeah, it was just a secret. Yeah, the yearning
1: just so everybody knows it is completely f- from the orthodox point of view women cannot be rabbis period uh, blasphemy
2: right? yeah blasphemy yeah.
1: yeah yeah so the, yeah <laughs> oh, God. oh boy well i don't often talk to people by the way that You know, from knew from that early age exactly. You know that they were going on a path that was both their uh, quote unquote career path, if you want to call it that. But more to the point, you knew exactly what you wanted to get, where you wanted to get inside yourself to become uh, a different human, and through through that.
2: I guess the way, the only way I can put it is to just say it wasn't a career path and it wasn't even something that I needed to get. It's something that I was born with. Mm. I was born with this and, um, and somehow it was going to happen, but I was definitely born this way. Yeah. This way as Lady Gaga would say, (laughs) (laughs) I was born this way. Yeah
1: so all right we'll tell the now we need to hear a little bit about the uh, premise of of the book and your discovery of this letter of einstein and uh yeah just it's a, it's a long story but maybe you can just put it into a a, a brief uh, summary
2: can i take one step backwards first sure Uh, I guess I I really can't discuss that without first talking a little bit about my father's murder. Mm. Um, uh, When I was in in that same Orthodox high school, um, my parents were walking down the street one night in Brooklyn, and uh, they were mugged, and um, the man shot my father. And um, everything my world everything that that was stable crumbled and um, suddenly just that word soul uh, kept coming up over and over again and I definitely from a from that point on from I was about 15 uh, became fascinated and maybe a little bit obsessed uh, with the soul what is the soul is it the key to the afterlife or is it something else as well? Is it the key to this life, here and now? Hmm. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, for many years I, after my father's murder, I felt very angry and uh, disillusioned, and also angry with my own faith, because I couldn't understand how the God I believed in, the God I prayed to, could permit such an awful thing to happen to such a wonderful person. But then I started to see things very differently. And I started to feel the soul of my father in my life. And I started to have deeper sense of our unity, of the interconnectedness of all things. And um, how I discovered this letter by Einstein was I started, I became a rabbi, (laughs) which was like coming full circle in my life, like coming home. Um, And I was teaching a course called Oneness, and I was doing research about the idea of our interconnectedness, and I came upon an often quoted piece by Einstein. It's quoted very often, and you'll see it in a lot of um, Buddhist books. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe (laughs) universe. Apart, limited in time and space, he experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest—a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Of true religion. So I was um, teaching this, and. What occurred to me was I needed to know the context of, where, of what Einstein was writing. Was this in a book somewhere? Was this part of a lecture? Where was he writing this? And I started to peel back the layers of this narrative, of this story, and it turned out it wasn't a lecture and it wasn't a chapter in a book. It was a letter, a letter that Einstein had written to a grieving father. And it said the father's name was Dr. Robert Marcus, And for some reason, I just went off on a tangent and I needed to know who this doctor was and what Einstein had to do with this doctor. And then it became clear to me with more research that this doctor was actually a rabbi, which is how back in the day they used to call clergy doctor, like Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And that this rabbi was grieving, but he wasn't just any rabbi. (laughs) He was a truly remarkable man whose story has just become a footnote to people who quote Einstein's um, Einstein's teaching. Um, Einstein's teaching completely stopped me in my tracks because it totally pointed to everything that I've come to believe in my life about true religion, which is a connectedness that unites all things and all people in the one, in oneness. But when I started to uncover the story of this man named Rabbi Marcus, uh, I realized he too was part of this journey, of my journey and I guess now everyone's journey who who happens to come by this book, not by the book, but come by the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> both, both. Everybody.
2: Um, he was a rabbi who uh, was part- who participated in the liberation of the Buchenwald concentration camp and discovered there a thousand little boys, including a boy who uh, who was Elie Wiesel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, this rabbi who had cared for so many children, upon his return to the states, uh, lost his own child, and he lost his path in a way, and here was uh, a man of spirit in a spiritual crisis. And who does he turn to? He doesn't turn to a rabbi. He turns to a physicist Hmm. to ask a question about the soul. And this is the response he gets. And it's a response um, that I think is so poignant and so powerful.
1: Totally. In fact, when you think, and I'm sure you, you're aware of what His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been doing with various scientists um, yes. to just verify what they have been um, studying and and uh, f- creating, to me, a, a phenomenal um, reality or connection to what is our real reality, whatever you want to call it. Yes. And this, and, and that he, this rabbi went to Einstein basically instead of, and you said in the book, it, he had access to great rabbinical minds, right?
2: Yes. He was the political director of the world Jewish Congress. He had access to the greatest Jewish minds of his time. And look, we'll never know if he did reach out to any of them. I'm assuming he did get comfort from other people. But his quest was to seek out the one person who he felt knew more about the workings of this universe than anyone alive. Mm. And the response he got was mystical. It was mystical wisdom from a man of science.
1: Totally. Totally amazing. Um, There is so much in this book uh yeah we'd need a lot more than uh, than a 45 minute or hour podcast whatever but there uh, so uh, there's a few things in it that really struck me uh i mean none the least of which of course is the uh, your pursuit of of your original pursuit of the interconnectedivity of all and uh the holiness of that and what soul really is these are things that, of course, we, in my own tradition, and you, I think you're aware of Ramdas, obviously. Actually, oh, yeah. Ramdas is the one who called me and said, uh, You need to do a podcast with uh, Rabbi Naomi Levy. I said, Oh, because I had not heard. Although I've lived in LA. I'm sorry we didn't catch up. I'm not there anymore. It's too. Um, but I'm sure we will one day. Uh, and I said, Okay. And so there in, you know, here we are. But we have been for a a very long time since he went first went to india that has been of course a central part of 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 who it is that's the core of our 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 whole lineage is that is the soul is kindness love service all of it so it's all in this book it's amazing
2: it's the collective soul that we're all part of
1: yeah so uh one thing that I really love because it means everything to me. My, um, And it's around music. Just let me read a little of what you wrote. Music is holy. It bypasses the mind and goes straight to the heart. It gives us permission to cry. Sing a mournful song and a heavy heart begins to soften and release its burdens. Sometimes the melody can lift you up. Sometimes it can break your heart. I believe our lamentations break God's heart too. When words don't suffice, there is a melody that can reach straight to heaven. Right? My whole life has been around music. My first, uh, and I've told this a billion times on the podcast, but first uh, out-of-body experience, whatever, really deep meditative experience, whatever you want to call it, was sitting uh, in a club with uh, John Coltrane when I was a teenager, and he played my favorite things. Right, that everyone has something that does it. That it, you know, unfortunately, I went to synagogue, and um, my my family was conservative. My my second, my mother's first cousin, part of our family, was the head rabbi at at uh, Shar Shemayim in Montreal, where I'm from. Uh-huh. Leonard Cohen's grandfather started that shul. You know, I had so much connectivity that way. You know, he was a hero of mine, uh, and nothing. Okay. Except the music. You know, Kol Nidre and some of the other incredible prayers that are sung during the high holidays and other times.
2: Well, Ragu, I think you know from what you've read that part of my mission is to reach the souls who have had that experience, the experience of nothing. And to reach those souls and say, No. <laughs> We're here to experience the nothingness, not the nothing. And part of that, I mean, part of, part of my mission is to allow people to experience the oneness and the creator and the soul in music, to really see the heartbeat and the soul through music. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, the kind of service that I lead uh, is all musical and sometimes ecstatic and sometimes uh, very meditative. But we're actually, um, we're in the process of, of creating an album of oh. prayers. Uh, a music producer, just so when you talk about synchronicity and things, um, a music producer came to my service and he's a very, very well-known man. Um, his name is Don Was.
1: Yeah, I know Don. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And he, uh, he said, we're making an album. Mm. So uh, wow, that's, that's fun. That's also part of the journey, is you just leave yourself open and doors start opening.
1: All right, but when I went to sh- shul back then, you know, all of the high, everything I went to, my father pushed me. I didn't have the same kind of relationship with my father that you did, Okay. And it took, yeah, yeah it took uh, him following me to India to see how my brother and I were doing. He was scared that we were getting taken away, maybe uh, by something or other, uh, to uh, actually uh, ha- have his life completely turned around, which is a whole other story. That I've
2: yeah. I do, I do think that we're dealing with a whole new generation where nobody pushed them, nobody taught them, and they're yearning.
1: Mm, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And
2: they're thirsty, and um, the wisdom is there, it just has to be tapped into.
1: But I didn't have anybody, but I, that, that's what I'm trying to say, I never had anybody like you, okay, speaking to me in, with this uh, kind of perspective, okay? It was a perspective of good and evil, it was no different than the fundamentalists in this country right now, as far as I was concerned. And it only later on, actually through Ramdas because he, he did hang out with Shlomo Karloak and and, uh, and so on, you know, that r- real people that yeah. were wide open. Um, wide and, open yeah, and wa-
2: a path of love.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Love. Not good and evil. Interconnectivity.
1: Yeah. So, uh, and, and just well, how this thing struck me about music because that's that's one of the key things that we brought back from India around chant uh, mm-hmm. that was so very important uh, and has become, you know, uh, something that we share regularly when we do these retreats and so on, and it's a big part of our, our practice as well as, uh, you know, there's someone uh, in our family, his name is Krishnadas, who... You might know of that, you know, his, uh, you know, gets huge audiences with what he's doing because he does it as practice. So yeah. uh, there's a couple of things, though. I, there's
2: there's eh? a, a Jewish chanting tradition, which is very similar. Um, and it's called the Negin, And it's just repetitive melody, no words. And it takes you deep and it takes you high and it could take you low and it could take you to a place that just completely blows your mind up just blows your mind open
1: hmm. what do you mean there's no um words there's no um no, words. no words. Hebrew just w-
2: melody. really just a melody. Huh. i didn't even know about that yeah
1: wow um so rabbi can you let's talk about some stuff that is in the book that uh, i think uh, your edification will help. Uh, part of what we do at Mind Rolling is 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 take from the ancient and make it plain and direct. For here we are now, for, <laughs> to so that we can be here now. And you talk about narrow mind and the expansive mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, can can you talk about that? I found that to be a fascinating topic.
2: Yeah, and. It- And of course, it's in all mystical traditions and in all faith traditions, but in the the Jewish mystical and Hasidic tradition, it's called katnut and gadlut. The constricted mind, the constricted consciousness, and the expansive one. And when we're living in constriction, uh, we see partial truths. We see half-truths. We follow... The mind's worst fears, uh, we're swayed by what other people label us to be. Um, but in the, in the mystical tradition, it says the soul actually sees from one end of the world to the other. That's, that's how broad its perspective is. And it's available to us. That kind of vision, the vision that allows us to see through every obstacle to see beyond every fear and to see beyond the ways that uh, that life tells us no when something within us says yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of uh, well, that that of course brings up one of the, you so cover this in so many different ways and so many different lights um but it's the soul and uh and, and this is again something I think this is the basic thing Ramdas loved about the book was all your attention to the soul which is something that he talks about all the time as well to get and, and it's kind of what you were just speaking of which is And get out of narrow mind and get into expansive mind and he calls it get out of your ego mind and get into your spiritual heart. Same Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. So you talk about three layers of the soul. Can you just expand Mm -hmm. upon that?
2: Yes, I mean, first of all, what I find fascinating about the idea that the soul has layers, uh, the first is just that we have the capacity in life to to tap into higher and higher levels of soul, it's not all the same, and that we have the capacity to actually grow our souls. <laughs> that our souls aren't static. That we just, just the, the the metaphor that's used in the Zohar is a flame, and that the soul is comprised of three colors or three layers, and the lower level of the soul is called nefesh. It's, it's the foundational soul. It's the the aspect of the soul that animates life, that gives us the power to act in life instead of being paralyzed. And it does help us with vision. And that, you could say, is the blue light of a candle. If you light a candle, you'll see the bottom is blue or black. And the next layer of soul is called Ruach, which is also called Spirit, which is the layer of the soul that's connected to love and to calling. And what happens is if we feed Nefesh, if we feed that lower level of soul, it can actually transform into a throne for the next level of soul to inhabit. And that next level of soul, the Ruach, teaches us how to love in ways of intimacy. It teaches us how to parent. It teaches us how to be a friend. It teaches us also how to love people we've never even met, how to care what it means to care, what it means to look at a stranger and see in them a brother, a sister. But it's that level of soul that also teaches us about call, about what we're called to do on a daily basis and perhaps what's been planted inside us, what we were born to do. If we feed ruach, if we feed that level of soul, it gives way and becomes a foundation for neshama, the highest level of our souls, the eternal force, the force that helps us see what Einstein was describing, that helps us live a prophetic life, a life that sees in the most expansive way and whose circle of compassion is the most expansive, which is really What we need in our world right now, we need to live on that higher level, which is called in Hebrew, neshama, or we can call it the eternal soul. Live in that place, Mm. the eternal level of our being.
1: Could it also be called the one?
2: Exactly.
1: Mm. it's so similar to...
2: It's knowing the one and allowing the one... To inhabit us.
1: So what can we do to cultivate those three uh, layers of the soul? Each layer, how do we cultivate it so that it it realizes itself? It's not some mental projection.
2: We cultivate the soul by giving it what it needs and what it wants. What does the soul want? I talk about this metaphor in the book that in rabbinic, in rabbinic teachings, it says that the the relationship between the body and the soul is like a peasant who marries a princess. And the poor peasant, he wants to impress the princess, so he wants to give her all sorts of stuff. But you know what? None of that means anything to her because she grew up in royalty. She grew up in a palace. She didn't marry the peasant so that he could bring her a mm. ring. Mm. She married the peasant so that he could love her. And the same is true of body and soul. The body is constantly trying to feed the soul the wrong things, the body thinks that the soul wants to eat a lot. <laughs> The body thinks the soul needs a new toy, a new electronics, a new house, a new kitchen, a new pair of shoes. We are constantly trying to feed the body when it's the soul that's hungry. And we need to understand the soul's hungers, the soul's thirsts. And the soul thirsts for love. <laughs> it, ser- it searches for connection with the other soul's. It seeks to learn, to study. It seeks out things like mother nature and being quiet in nature, finding peace and elevation in music, prayer, a day of rest for God's sakes, (laughs) time to unplug from all this stuff that we're doing right now to just be still enough to hear, to just hear the silent longings within us to hear what the people in our lives are really trying to say to us and to hear the voice of whatever you want to call it, the creator or the universe, however you want to call it, that's calling out to us, listen, return, come back, come back to who you are, come back to what you were born to be, return to yourself to what's planted inside of you. I call it in the book, taking a selfie. (laughs) We're all really experienced at taking selfies, but as we know, selfies don't tell you anything about the self, really. And they're always a distortion of reality, either because we pretend to be way happier than we really are, or because we're disproportionately large with a vast expanse behind us that looks disproportionately small. And taking a soul fee is the daily practice of getting to know our own souls, which are closer to us than we can ever imagine, and unfortunately, farther farther from us than we can understand. And I talk in the book about how getting to know your soul is like trying to meet a deer in the woods, and how quiet you have to be, how easy it is to scare it away because everything else in life is shouting at us, but the soul speaks in whispers. We have to be still and quiet enough to hear its message, what it's trying to show us and to teach us about who we are and what we are and where we're going.
1: So meditation, then, would be a, a part of what you share with people? And-
2: Huge. I've, I've been teaching Jewish meditation for over 20 years. And um, look, I, I say in the book, um, I'm not a Stoic warrior. I'm a Brooklyn warrior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I know that without meditation... I'd be a lot worse. (laughs) And uh, meditation is a time for allowing the volume of the soul's voice to be heard. It's like just turning that knob. Of course, nobody turns any knobs anymore. But it's raising the volume of what the soul has to teach us And quieting the mind, what you call the ego in Hebrew. We call it the yeshut, the I, the me, Mm -hmm. getting to the place that's beyond words, that's ineffable. And that's where the listening begins. We can stop being swayed this way and that way, either by internal thoughts or external distractions and start doing the listening.
1: What is the practical application of Jewish meditation?
2: How does one do it? Yeah. Um, There are many forms of of, uh, traditional Jewish meditation. Some of them have to do with meditating on an image, like a Hebrew letter. Huh. Uh, sometimes it's a mantra, a Hebrew word, Like a verse. Give oh, me one.
1: Give a me a word, Jewish mantra, Rabbi, please.
2: A Jewish mantra. There's a Hebrew word that's a very powerful mantra to me. It's called chusa. 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 Oh. Chusa.
1: Yeah, I read about it in the book, yeah.
2: And chusa isn't just kindness, it isn't just compassion. It's a very special kind of love that a creator has for his or or her own creations. And sort of the metaphor I use in the book is that lopsided potholder that you made in kindergarten that you brought home to your parents and it looked like all hell, but somehow... Your mother loved it so much that she hung it on the refrigerator. Mm. That's what chusa is. It's particularly a love for something that's lopsided. <laughs> it's a compassion for something that's imperfect, precisely because it's imperfect. And the husa meditation is simply the repetition of this word chusa, chusa. I I always think when I say chusa in my mind that it actually sounds like a wave as it's hitting the shore and just washing everything away. Chusa. Chusa. And it's all about having that kind of compassion for our own selves because honestly, no one is meaner to us than we can be to ourselves. It's about seeing ourselves in our wholeness Not seeing, ugh, I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad friend, I'm no good, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm a loser. It's about seeing I'm holy and I'm loved and I'm lovable and there's goodness in me. I have some good points. Mm -hmm. But it's also, once you start to see that, it's also about seeing others in that light. And unfortunately, I was actually just at a medical conference um, where someone uh, taught about how people track other people's faces so that if you had, God forbid, a stroke and half your face was paralyzed, that the natural human instinct is for me to stare at the part of you that's wrong, that doesn't fit. That's natural. But honestly, we're not here to be natural. Why think so little of ourselves? We're here to be supernatural. And part of the chusa meditation is to see what's right about people and not focus about what's wrong in them. Mm, And I believe the same is true with the higher force. (laughs) So often people walk around with anger toward the deity, toward the creator, just as I did. Is that your dog? Yeah. I have a dog, too.
1: No, I have five.
2: Okay. You have know five dogs? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. Until last year when I developed asthma, we had two goats and six chickens and two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> if I beat you? <laughs> yeah,
1: that beats it. That, that, that So I always have a little barking in a, in a podcast. Yeah, so yeah. It kind of blesses it. Oh, this is an... Um, I love what this is. So, but practically speaking, again, you one would repeat chusa in the Husa, in H U S A, in their minds or out or, or loud. You could
2: say it's really C H, like Hanukkah. C-H. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it's spelled. I spelled it in the book Husa with an H, just like you could spell Hanukkah with an H yeah. too. But it's Husa, like Hanukkah. Yeah.
1: Right. Husa. Right. It's that Hebrew thing. Yeah. Uh,
2: and repeating the word. And just allowing it, you know, sometimes you have to let go enough to let a force do its job. Mm. Just to let it do what it does. And I think that sometimes we try so hard to control. We have to allow chusa to do its work. So I I often tell my students, just imagine you swallowed the word like you swallowed an Advil just allow it to have its way with you. Allow it to burn away the muck. Be still enough to allow it to go where it needs to go. You know, um <laughs> my husband bought us one of those um Roomba vacuum cleaners. It's like a it's like a robot that just it just like schleps around your house vacuuming on its own and it just <laughs> goes where it wants to go, picking up the dust. So I just, like, imagine that. Just imagine a holy word flowing through and it knows where it needs to go. All you have to do is just let mm-hmm. it in and yeah. be its partner.
1: Yeah. It's, it's so great because, you know, as you speak about these things, I think of my own tradition and, and the stuff we do. Uh, uh, Krishna Das says this all the time. The mantra takes you it has a certain vibrational quality which takes you inside. You do not have to think about it. You don't have right. to worry about it. You just need to get as one-pointed as you can get and repeat it, period. So.
2: Well, is it any wonder? It's yeah. no wonder that that at, at the root of everything is one wisdom. Yeah. At the root of everything is one piece of wisdom. And... uh it gets it gets disseminated in through so many different traditions and languages and faiths the problem is anybody who thinks they have the only way yeah
1: right absolutely but let me tell you you can reflect some light on this i think so we do these retreats in maui with ramdas and krishnas and Uh, our family. And then we have a family that we've had for decades of Buddhists who come along. Sharon Salzberg being Actually, they're all,
2: they're all Jews. (laughs)
1: It's so weird. People go, what? Why? I don't know. Jews are adventurous. That's all that I can say that we went over to India. What could we do? Anyhow. So.
2: Jews are deep, man. Jews (laughs) are deep. (laughs)
1: Um, I can think of some very deep uh, non Jewish people. Of course. People.
2: <laughs> of course.
1: Um, no, but what I'm trying to say is that Ramdas will talk about soul. And as he's talking about soul, Sharon or Jack Cornfield, somebody will be sitting next to him, one of the Buddhists, and he'll kind of look over. And give a little bit of a grin, knowing there ain't no soul in Buddhism. And, and, of course, they're completely okay with it all because they're so advanced, these people. They're not stuck in this is the way, that's for sure. But I often think there can't be, it's, there is only one thing going on, and we've interpreted it in different ways. And what they call Buddha mind, can it be any different than soul? Have you thought about that kind of thing?
2: There's a little passage of Einstein's that I quoted in the book where Einstein, as a child, received a compass from his father. He was sick in bed, and his father gave him a compass as just a toy to delight a child. And here's this little genius, and Einstein, in thinking about it, many years later said, somehow that compass was the beginning of everything because I needed to know what caused the arrow to point north. Mm -hmm. And I believe within each person, there's a compass. You can call it whatever the heck you want. You could call it expansive mind. You could call it soul. You could call it conscience. You could call it whatever you want to call it. You can give it any name you like. But there's something within us that's sacred, that's as wise as, as, as all the ages, that's as expansive as the entire universe, that's as broad and as loving and as universal as the air we breathe. And we all have access to it and we all have the power to ignore it.
1: Absolutely. That is it. Thank you for that, shining that light. Um, There's one other, well, there's so many things in this book. Again, I could go on for a while, but uh, there's one chapter that's devoted to forgiveness, the the healing of forgiveness. Um, Well, that one, when I read that, yeah, that was uh, heart-rending. Whoa. Do you want to tell that story
2: um, that's a tough one, right? Oh my it's a, a very dear friend of mine who I've known for many years who had an ideal life, truly uh, a lovely woman, a devoted mother, a devoted wife, successful, the kind of person who had everything going her way. And I say, I say, I say it this way, unfortunately in life, there's never a soundtrack that warns you what's coming. There's never a soundtrack. And she was just driving mindlessly with her son in the back seat, going on a mindless errand. And the phone dropped, her cell phone dropped onto the floor, and she reached to get it. And in that split second when she reached to get the phone, she hit a man in the crosswalk. And that man died. And her life, as she knew it, was over. The life she knew was over. And she had to find a way to forgive herself. She had to find a way to do her penance. (laughs) She had to find a way to believe that she was lovable. And she so wanted to ask forgiveness from this man whose life she had taken. And she was so praying every single day that she could ask forgiveness from his wife and from his son. And she didn't believe she could ever have any of that. And I met with her, I spoke with her many times. And one of the things I gave her was something called a Kamea. Actually, let me see if I have, I'm wearing one. I, I, I I work in amulets. I write amulets for people and it's magic. A Kamea is simply a blessing, a prayer in a scroll that helps people to unite simply their inner reality, their innermost prayers with their outer reality. Mm. And I told her what the Maimonides taught the great Jewish philosopher. He said, if you have harmed someone who's died, you can go to their grave and beg forgiveness. And she said, I can do that? I said, yes, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And so she went to his grave and she poured tears. And somehow she felt just even by a breeze on her shoulder that she'd been heard, that she'd been heard that there was a meeting of souls. But his wife and his son, she just felt, how could they ever forgive her? How could they? And how could she learn to forgive herself? And she started slowly, slowly. To, you know, part of her her um, her requirement by the court system, her community service was to clean the beach and daily to shovel and, you know, in an orange vest. And she began to speak out, to teach in public schools, to go to teach kids and their parents, hey, even looking at your phone for a second while you're driving, you don't realize it, but you're actually traveling the length of a football field just reading one text you're traveling the length of a football field blind. Mm. Mm. And then she began reciting the Psalms I gave her. I told her to start reciting the Psalms and praying morning and night, morning and night. And she began to write her own Psalms. And she said to me, my whole life I was praying, but now I see what I didn't see then that every word was written for me. I couldn't see it then. And she kept reaching out to this man's wife and to his son. And after three and a half years, one day she reached out and they said, yes, we'd like to meet with you. And what ensued there that day is nothing short of a miracle. Mm. Because when she went to meet this widow, the widow had come equipped with notes. Wow. And Rachel just came and said, I need to just tell you how sorry I am that I took Jack's life. How sorry I am. And Hannah, the widow, said, I brought all these papers, but they're not very nice. I'm going to put them away now and let's talk and in the end that day ended not just with forgiveness but with blessings and with embraces
1: wow incredible story really incredible oh boy well we're getting close to the end of our podcast but uh there's something here that uh, that you put in another thing from Einstein that I, I really want to, have to share with people. Um, I guess it's from, it's where he lived in that uh, home by the lake, I guess, before <laughs> the war.
2: Yeah, Kaput.
1: Kaput, yeah. Um, it, it was an essay where he articulated the foundation of his faith, you wrote. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand rapt in awe, is as good as deb- dead, a snuffed out candle to sense that behind anything that can be experienced there is something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublimity reaches us only indirectly. This is religiousness. In this sense, and in this sense only, I am a devoutly religious man. How great is that?
2: So powerful. I mean,
1: I never, Rabbi, I never came across any of uh, this material I only have come across the most common things from Einstein
2: yeah like keep riding a bicycle you know (laughs) Life's like riding a bicycle yeah
1: Uh, and to to read these things is uh, worth the price of admission never mind the rest of the book I mean it is so fantastic Uh, I'm glad you um, accidentally um, you know came upon this right this whole thing with Rabbi Marcus was amazing
2: as, you know, as I think we both believe, there's no accidents.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, I pulled on a thread and it it led to a tapestry that I didn't even know existed. Right. right. And I love what he says about how the mind can't comprehend it. It's something that comes to us indirectly from some much deeper
1: place, mm. yeah.
2: Wonder, mystery.
1: Mm. It's something. Uh, I don't know if you know her. It's a good friend of ours named Roshi Joan Halifax. I don't know if you. Oh, you must uh, try. You 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 guys would uh, would have a great fun meeting. But she. That's her uh, talks about the mystery and respecting it and honoring it and loving it uh, all the time, uh, especially. She does a lot of work with, uh, has done a lot of work in the past with uh, people who are dying and sick and so on. Uh, and, you know, she certainly emphasizes that. Uh, yeah. yeah, you should check her out. There's, uh, the other thing in here that, uh, I mean, again, things that I really just, you know, went, oh, wow, right, you know. Um, Just the the challenge of our time is that technology gives us false hope that we can be here and there at the same time, that we no longer need to choose. It's a hubris, a belief that nothing will suffer as a result of our multitasking. So I am the biggest offender in this. uh, You're talking to me directly. Our thinking is suffering. Our creativity is suffering. Our relationships are suffering. Our work is suffering. Our bodies are suffering. Our emotions are suffering. Our driving is suffering. Our sex lives are suffering. Our souls are suffering. And uh, I, I actually just recently did a, a, a podcast with a gentleman named Pico Ayer who who's uh, close to the Dalai Lama, and wrote a book called The Art of Stillness. And he, who, he lives part of the time in Japan... Has no cell phone, does not deal at all with any technology, and he's really taken up that one, you know, that the spaciousness that is such a great part of uh, of Japanese culture and, of course, of Zen. And uh, yeah, I I'm a big offender.
2: So I was just in Japan, and I would tell you that there isn't so much more than in the United States. We're just there for two weeks. Everybody's like this. Yeah. Everybody has an iPhone in their face. If you're sitting in a restaurant, people aren't even talking to each other in Japan. Yeah. They just sit like this.
1: Well, they're not doing it here either. <laughs> but <laughs> but
2: it's, it's more so there. I mean the yeah. the invasion of technology into personal space is much more so there than really? here.
1: Well, oh, then yeah. there's another part of there that he's part of in yeah. Kyoto. Okay. I
2: was at, I was I was in, no Kyoto's pretty bad, but I was in a monastery. <laughs> I was in a monastery where you get the point.
1: Yeah, right. You well, could, okay. Well, let's take the good part of of Zen and yeah, and the stillness yeah. and spaciousness and and install it more in our lives, as, or in my life. That's what I'm talking to myself, actually.
2: I love that word, install. <laughs> like. Like a program.
1: Yeah. I want to get a program <laughs> and, installed. You
2: know. No, uh, I, I couldn't uh, I, I can't emphasize it more. I, I, I say early on in the book that so many of the life questions people come to me with as a rabbi, I realize are soul questions. And our souls are starving and they can't be fed with an iPhone. And we're we're running ourselves so thin that our relationships are for sure suffering and our work and our ability to think clearly and to make any space for creative thought is suffering, suffering terribly.
1: I just want
2: to power to do something different. It isn't easy. It's a discipline. And how funny is it that, it's a new discipline that's never existed before in human history that we have to cultivate, yeah. <laughs> which is to refrain from social media, to refrain from our smartphones, to refrain from our emails for at least some sacred time every day to just find the space for it because it's not just going to get worse. It's going to get profoundly more invasive.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we, okay. The suggestion is everybody, like we do on on this podcast, mind rolling, and the Be Here Now Network. Be Here Now is nothing more or less than taking space and being in the moment. And uh, so uh, here's Husa. Repeat that for five minutes. Sit in a quiet space, wherever it is that you connect yourself. Have a picture of, uh, could be, as you said, gee, something from the Hebrew alphabet would be good as a yantric kind of thing. That's how they do it in India.
2: Just even picturing a wave, a Mm. wave that's just washing away all the muck.
1: Right. Picture of a wave and chusa. Repeated five minutes. That's your that's your uh, exercise, everybody. Okay, everybody out there. Thank you, thank you, Naomi, Rabbi Naomi, for this. It's
2: you can call great. me Naomi. It's good. No,
1: I like Rabbi. I really do. You know, it's part of like my whole. Like I said, I I went south. Okay, in my I went to Talmud Torah. Okay, the first seven years I learned my studies were half in Hebrew and it's like yeshiva, half in Hebrew, half in English. Right. I i was a very unhappy young man. I cannot tell you how unhappy I was. And so whenever I do, and I've met a couple of wonderful rabbis uh, more lately, um, and and by uh, calling you Rabbi Naomi, it, it's resetting a whole other thing that has gone on in my head for the last God knows how long. So, Well,
2: I'm... I'm happy to help you reboot.
1: Yeah, good. That's...
2: <laughs> in any way possible, to just um, to see with new eyes. I think that just in general, so much of just even what Einstein's quote that you just quoted about mystery, mm. it really comes down to just a new pair of eyes. It, it really comes down to that, just reframing mm-hmm. and seeing. Yeah, just a new set of eyes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful spending this time with you, everybody out there. You go ahead and get Einstein and the Rabbi Searching for the Soul, Naomi Levy. You don't caption yourself, Rabbi Naomi Levy, on the cover of the book. I'm looking at it, just Naomi Levy, but she's a real rabbi, folks. And you're in Los Angeles, and where can people come to your congregation?
2: Well um, my website is nashuva.com n a s h u v a nashuva.com and nashuva meets in Brentwood. i live in Venice Beach right mm. by the ocean mm. and um, anytime you're all welcome to come but also we do live webcasts we're going to be doing a live webcast for Yom Kippur of oh. Kol Nidre oh. and we have, last year we had 70,000 people with wow. us online Yeah, I think it's the largest uh, prayer service in the Jewish tradition today, Uh, and I welcome you to come to just join the party.
1: Okay, so this is the opposite side of uh, the way in which technology is uh, is a minus. There's also a plus, and the way it's a plus is, well, I was going to say, you'll be able to hear this podcast when you... Oh, yeah. You know, Subscribe okay. to it on iTunes and you get it on your smartphone, which you can listen to when you're on the plane or something. So that's, okay. and, Or you can join Naomi in in the cold uh, Nidre on uh, the Day of Atonement. Atonement, Yom Kippur.
2: I mean, a plus is me looking into your eyes right now across the country and seeing a brother. Yeah. That's a plus. Yeah. And all we have to do, you know, just the same thing with fire is to recognize that the fire can burn you. Hmm. So Very we have good. to understand its power. Its power to help, and it's got a power to hurt. Yeah. And we have to treat it with a certain level of respect. Just like I was saying about that woman who was driving, treat it with respect, understand.
1: Hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for being here Naomi.
2: Thank you for having me. Really this is really, it. this is really fun. Yeah. This is So no, we have
1: to do it again. Plus, we maybe got to get you over to Maui to hang out with us in one of these retreats. I think that would days?
2: be so very cool.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah.
2: It's, uh, a real joy. And um, and like I said, we're we're all part of the same journey. And this world and this country. This week in this time, we need. All of the power we can get, people of goodness need to join together to understand that we have to be warriors for love. We Mm. have to fight for it and spread it Mm. far and wide.
1: Yeah. I love that. Warriors for love. I'm writing it down. Thank you so much, Naomi Levy. Thank you, And this is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And you can uh, get all of the links. We're going to put everything uh, on the uh, show notes page so that you can find Rabbi Naomi and you can find the book. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again.
2: Blessings to you.
1: (laughs) Namaste.